0: Welcome to the Wheel of Sports, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me is...
1: Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery! Hello Ian, how are you?
0: Very, very good, Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery. Get the wheel spinning and... um, Matt, recently I was gifted a bottle opener by a brewery. Absolutely brilliant, right? That brewery does not make any beers in a bottle. The topic (laughs) for this episode (laughs) is... (laughs) What a nice... (laughs) <laughs>
1: nice gift.
0: <laughs> um,
1: this week's out of bounds, Ian. Out of bounds. And I'm going to take this one, if that's all right. Um, and just as a reminder, out of bounds is the topic uh, or the theme that we have when there's a story that maybe happens outside of the field of
0: play. It's the extra bit, isn't it? You know, so much happens on the field of play, but there's so much of sport and probably the most interesting bit of sport, in my opinion, is the stuff that actually happens beyond the actual field of play or exactly. track or whatever. Court. Well, this,
1: this is a story um, about a man, an Australian man called Peter Norman. And look, you know, his story happens on the field as well. And we'll obviously talk a little bit about what he's, uh, what he's achieved. But Peter Norman was an Australian sprinter who was incredible absolutely incredible uh, sprinter. And we'll talk about his achievements later. Um, But I really want to talk about a specific moment in his life and uh, another two two men's lives called Tommy Smith and John Carlos, uh, two American sprinters. Uh, And this moment happened in Mexico City in 1968 during the Olympics. And it's a really famous, iconic image. And I'm sure you and and our listeners have probably seen before, but maybe don't know too much about. It's the image of the three men standing on the podium, um, and there's two two black men, one white man, um, and the the two black men have their hands in a black glove, uh, each each of them are wearing a black glove, uh, making a fist, raising their hand above their head, head bowed. It's what became known as as the Black Power salute, uh, and and up on that podium, I think you know it's easy. To, to look to the two black athletes, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, and sort of overlook the other man standing on the podium, this this white Australian man called Peter Norman. You know, to the casual observer, is not obviously making any protest at all. But but that's sort of not the whole story, and that's that's the guy I want to talk about today, Peter Norman.
0: Excellent. And if any listener is wants to refamiliarize himself with that image, if you look at your device that you're listening on now, I've put an image there, that iconic image. Uh, so if you've got a compatible device have a look at it yeah check it out so
1: such a powerful image um and you you know such an such an important image i think it's important first of all just to address some of the context in in 1968 racial segregation is happening in america it's 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 a thing which you know maybe people who 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 haven't lived through a racially segregated country, which is not just a social societal prejudice, but actually a legally mandated one, um, probably feels very alien and very hard to comprehend. But this is a world in America in 1968 where signs are used to indicate where African Americans are legally allowed to walk, talk, drink, rest, eat, sleep—you know, everything. Work is is legally segregated and there's segregated facilities extending from white only schools to white only graveyards so your whole life as a well as as a person living in America would be informed by this and this has been going on in slave codes before the American Civil War and then was mandated later by the Jim Crow laws after the Civil War so this has been going on for a long time but in the 50s and 60s there's various landmark legal cases that start to change the laws. So as we get into 1968, you know times are changing. Um, that, as I say, there've been a lot of legal uh, cases, especially Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Act of 1965, and the Fair Housing Act of 1968. And these these cases are starting to bring an end to the Jim Crow laws, but society is not healed. Racism is still a huge problem. To give you an idea, in 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy have both been killed or assassinated. You know, for for daring to to speak out about racial injustice. So, this is a hugely divided nation. Again, echoes of of probably the modern the modern uh, era, um, and it's it, it's a real hot topic. Okay, and it's not easy either i think you know it's it because it's because it's law and some people denied that there was a problem you know others felt that these these legal cha- changes these legal cases that i've just mentioned were enough and that 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 wasn't that was it but obviously a lot of people felt that there was still a long way to go to you know reaching equality and i think uh certainly i feel there's there's still a long way to go even you know, over 50 years later.
0: I think maybe one important thing to note here as well is how um, violent and aggressive the society in terms of race was and arguably is and how that puts into context what these American men did on the podium, putting themselves at a huge risk of violence, not only from... Maybe uh, you know fringe uh, right wing groups, but also from the the law enforcement. So it really puts it into context. And I think that's another thing that's hard for us to imagine, having not had that persecution, is uh, quite how dangerous it is to uh, speak up against it, and how admirable it is as well.
1: Most definitely, most definitely. Well, as I say, back in 1968. Um... The Olympics is going to be held in Mexico City. America is going through this these problems and the black athletes, or a lot of black athletes at least, felt that their success as American black athletes was being used to sort of imply that there was less institutionalised racism than there really was um, because they could succeed as black athletes and be celebrated, but if they failed or weren't successful, then maybe they weren't there. So... Again, there was this disagreement or dispute about institutionalised racism and what should be done about it and how it could be done um, and maybe tokenism around black athletes sort of in their place in society and black people's place in society. So there was an organisation started in America, um, the Olympic Project for Human Rights, and that was a an American organisation that aimed to protest racial segregation in the US and elsewhere, most obviously probably in South Africa where there was the apartheid regime um, and just racism in sports in general. And in the lead up to the 1968 Olympics, there was talk and plans of a boycott by the American black athletes uh, unless four conditions were met, those conditions being South Africa and Rhodesia being uninvited from the Olympics um, because they were both under white minority rule at the time. The restoration of Muhammad Ali's world heavyweight boxing title. Avery Brundage to step down as the president of the IOC, the Olympic... Uh, sorry, the International Olympic Committee. And then within America, the hiring of more African-American or black assistant coaches. So these were their four conditions. Uh, and if they... The plan was to boycott the Olympics if that if they weren't met. Um, in the end, that didn't end up happening. Uh, but instead, they opted to wear badges, uh, badges reading the Olympic Project for Human Rights. So this is very much an American Olympic team related organisation. It's for American athletes. And that's sort of the context as we go into the 1968 Olympics. So Peter Norman's there. He's a, he's the Australian sprinter. And this is, well, it was described by the commentator as the hottest 200 metre ever assembled at the olympics okay the the lineup at this time is is better than it's ever been to to this point okay it's absolutely that you know everybody running there is is amazing uh, and as a result peter norman is really not not fancied um certainly not to to make the podium you know if he even finishes in sort of the top 4 or 5 i think that would be seen as an achievement he runs an amazing race uh, he finishes second as i say exceeding all expectations he gets on the podium and he is 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 joined on the podium by the US athlete uh, Tommy Smith who's won the race with a world record time of 19.83 seconds uh, Peter Norman as I said he finished second with 20.06 seconds and in the US John Carlos uh, he finished in third with a time of 20.1 seconds so you know very very yeah. You know, 0.04 seconds between Norman and, and John Carlos. So it's a really close race. Peter Norman, you know, is, is sort of way back in the pack. You know, Tommy Smith always looks a comfortable winner, but Peter Norman just really chases down John Carlos and, and ends up stealing the silver medal from him. It's it's a fantastic race, and uh, Peter Norman's made the podium. I think there'd been some expectation that, that Tommy Smith and John Carlos would probably make the podium, they were involved in the Olympic Project for Human Rights already. And uh, they'd planned to, to protest uh, the problems and the inequality in America. And they're in the meeting room, or sort of, they're about to go out to get, you know, have their medal ceremony. And Peter Norman says that he wants to get involved. And initially, I think, Carlos and Smith felt, well, this is an American thing. We're not too sure about you getting involved. But he explained about Australia... And Australia's problems with racism, and racism more generally, and that he wanted to be an ally. He wanted to, to show his support for the movement. And what had happened was John Carlos, they'd all planned to wear black gloves. Uh, John Carlos had actually left his in the Olympic village. So Peter Norman was the one who suggested they each wear one glove. So if you, if you look at the photo, you'll see John Carlos is wearing a glove on his left hand and Smith's wearing it on his right hand uh which sort of wasn't the plan, but they both both were able
0: to participate, uh, due to Peter Norman's suggestion. You would think that one of them would have been quick enough to run back to the Olympic village and get the gloves. I mean the, the, these fellas are rapid, like just, just run back and get the It that is it's it's kind of funny that, isn't it, that it's a a wardrobe malfunction. But it it kind of made it more effective in some ways didn't it that photograph kind of yeah definitely because it adds yes, a bit of curiosity to it but i didn't i didn't realize it was norman who suggested that they split the gloves and
1: yes yeah that was norman's uh, involvement which john carlos um you know speaks fondly about if, if if you want to look up some interviews with him he's, he's always talking about that moment um and also the the uh, carlos and smith um you might you might not be able to see it in photo Ian puts up there, but they're actually uh, not wearing any shoes and they're just wearing black socks, and that there is sort of that that was their uh, their protest it's not just about black inequality it's also about poverty, and that was sort of their uh, demonstration that they were also protesting poverty so they're not wearing any shoes just just black socks
0: but that was deliberate they, they hadn't left the shoes back no in, no that wasn't a <laughs> that, wardrobe that malfunction. Was more thought out that's, a, that's yes. a relief and so presumably peter norman didn't know that they were going to do this protest until right before the
1: well i think it was something that had been talked about because as i said the the olympic project for human rights movement and organization had talked about boycotting the whole olympics so it was certainly a topic that was being discussed. What Peter Norman's knowledge or expectation of the protest would be prior to that meeting in the uh, in the room before they went out to the medal ceremony, I, I'm not too sure. But he'd been raised by the Salvation Army. He was sort of a, a big part of that movement uh, in Australia. He's uh, from uh, just outside of Melbourne in uh, in Coburg, the suburb of Coburg. I I guess you know his his moral code and his his upbringing sort of meant that maybe he was sympathetic and, you know, believed strongly in the same values of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And it was something that he wanted to to, to demonstrate his involvement with. But as I said at the, at the beginning, this was an American movement. So he didn't have a badge to wear, but he went and spoke to um, one of the American rowing team, guy from the US rowing team, told him his plan, that he wanted to, to be a part of this, and that the rower was absolutely delighted. He felt it was it was a, it was a great symbol, and gave him his his badge uh, for the Olympic project for human rights. So, um, so Peter Norman was able to to wear this badge, and he was able to go and, and sort of participate uh, in the in the protest. And he was as I said, he was protesting the racism in Australia in 1968 because. At that time, Australia had a form of apartheid that's probably often overshadowed by the apartheid of South Africa at that time. Um, But there were restrictions on... In Australia, there were restrictions on non-white immigration. Um, There was forced adoptions to white families of Aboriginal children with the lighter skin. Um, There were discriminatory laws against Aboriginal Indigenous peoples. And at this time, Australia was really struggling with its identity as a new country and its own racist laws that were that you know were legally mandated again so i think today we might say a lot of countries including australia might have have problems with race um but certainly back then they were you know a legal requirement so peter was really sort of protesting against a lot of these things as well as racism and inequality more generally um and certainly he felt a part of the uh the movement that that both uh, John Carlos and and, and Tommy Smith were, were a part of.
0: It's quite high risk uh kind of getting in on someone else's uh organization, is it? Getting in on their big muscling in on a big moment because you can't avoid the fact that he's white, you know, and uh, this might not you know certainly um, um part of activism sees you know white people as the as the devil or the enemy particularly in the religious um sex in the u.s so there is this notion which is it seems a high risk strategy but he must have just been a very nice man
1: but i think <laughs> i think that's it you know i don't think he muscled in on it because he you know his his protest is a very subtle one and to look at the photo you you wouldn't even see that he's a part of it um, and I think that that has a quiet power in itself. You know that he he didn't try and steal a show or look at me. It was in fact a much more modest and subtle support of the main protest. You know he it it, it wasn't all about Peter Norman. It was about him being an ally and being sympathetic and supportive to to the campaign um,
0: that that John Carlos and Tommy Smith were making. So. We also say how nice men John Carlos and Tommy Smith must have been as well to allow Peter Norman to st- stand in solidarity with them as well. Well,
1: I think they were pleased. I mean, John Carlos talks about it. He says that you know he he didn't know what, if P- if Peter Norman would would feel any fear, but he said when he looked in his eyes, all he saw was love, which I think is quite a cool a cool quote from John Carlos to talk about. Getting him involved. But you are you're absolutely right there, Ian, when you say that this was a high risk move by Peter Norman. Obviously it was something he felt very strongly about and, and was committed to to doing. Uh, but the aftermath of this, when he returns home to Australia, is he he becomes a bit of a pariah. He's you know, he's often called the N-word, um, you know, when he's out and about. Um obviously John Carlos and Tommy Smith uh had there was ramifications for them they were actually thrown out of the olympic committee and and their teams and they were stripped of their medals um but john carlos talks about the fact that he felt you know whatever john carlos and tommy smith were suffering peter norman was suffering more because he was suffering alone as a white man who'd stood with the black americans and now had return to australia um, and you know, maybe even in his own community, he wasn't lauded as a hero in the way that that John Carlos and Tommy Smith were when they returned to to America. He's just
0: run the two hundred meters in twenty seconds.
1: <laughs> it's it's unbelievable. Um, but the IOC ban Smith and Carlos from the Olympic Games for life. As I said, Peter Norman is experiencing problems of his own. Um, but those pro- those are, those problems become most clear four years later. In the run-up for the, for the Munich Olympics due to be held in 1972, he ran times that would have qualified him for the, for the 200 meters 13 times and for the 100 meters five times. You know he, he did he achieved what he needed to do 13 times and five times. He's also ranked number five in the world, and he's a five-time national 200 meters champion. But rather than involve Peter Norman, the, the Australian Olympic Committee decided just not to send a team to compete in those sprint events because they didn't want him as as, as part of it. He'd become a pariah for standing uh, with John Carlos and Tommy Smith um, for supporting that movement, and as a result, the Australian uh, Olympic team wanted nothing to do with him, and, and he was out. Uh, and that was it. He was forced to retire uh, shortly after. And, um, and that was it. You know, his, his career's in ruins. Um, obviously, his life's been, you know, affected in a detrimental way hugely. Um, and, that, and that continued on for, for the rest of his life. In 2000, uh, Australia held the Olympics in Sydney. And every Australian medal winner was invited, to, you know, of, uh, of all ages, from all previous Olympics. Anybody who'd won a medal as an Australian was invited to march at the Olympic ceremony, except for Peter Norman because he hadn't denounced the Olympic project for human rights movement. So even in the year 2000, Peter Norman is still seen as somebody that they didn't, you know, the Australian team didn't want to involve. Um, And and bizarrely when the American team heard about this, they invited the Australian Peter Norman to march with them, Um, which is just bonkers, (laughs) isn't it really? Um, but yeah it's uh you know he he, his stand as i say this quiet stand that he took uh to support this movement you know it cost him a lot but he never backed down he was he felt it was the right thing to do then and it was something that he was always proud that he was involved with um and you know i think i think most tellingly he uh he became great friends with Tommy Smith and particularly John Carlos. I think they were all friends. Um, but John Carlos, you know, speaks to his mum very regularly. I've seen interviews with his mum, Thelma, um, and John Carlos talking about their friendship. John Carlos refers to her as, uh, his, mother from, from another. Um, and he talks about Peter Norman being his, 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 Australian white brother. Um, and sadly in 2006, when Peter Norman dies, quite suddenly a heart attack, um, Tommy Smith and and John Carlos were his pole bearers. They they flew to to Victoria and into Williamstown, and uh, yeah, stood at the front of the the coffin and, and sort of carried him out. Um, so these were great friends who, you know, that that their relationship be, became absolutely secure at, at this moment. Um, and he, you know, as as I say, I don't I don't just want to talk about the off field stuff. This guy is an incredible runner. He he still holds the Australian and oceanic record for the 200 metres today, you know, over 50 years later. Um, absolute Olympic Olympic champion, or well, Olympic civil, silver medalist, but still, uh, you know, human rights champion. He died in 2006, so he never lived to see his treatment being apologised for. In in 2012, um, as, as recently as that, the Australian government actually apologized for their treatment of peter norman um so that's a that's a matter of record it was uh it was discussed in in parliament in australia it's 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 sad that maybe it was never he, he never got to see see him his name being cleared but it was something that he was always very proud of doing and he always felt was the the right move
0: and you know his, his friends and family obviously hold him in the highest possible regard as do i matt what a <laughs> what a bloody great thing to do and to not think about the, the cost that it, it does and and people, you know, who say these things don't make a difference clearly when the authorities feel so threatened by it that even years later they're still being utter jobs worth about whether to have him in the Sydney <laughs> in the Sydney Olympics yeah. it's walk, just, walking it's just, proud is It's absolutely laughable and obviously
1: it has echoes of of the Black Lives movement, you know. Maybe the Black Lives Movement sort of echoes that. Would be would be a better way of putting it, you know. If uh, Colin Kaepernick and taking a knee, you know, which has now, I think since since twenty twenty, become a bit of a global global thing, where you know even in the English Premier League, uh, teams are are, t- are kneeling before kick kneeling before kickoff to to protest um, discrimination and and inequality, but it's it, it upsets a lot of people like you know president donald trump certainly doesn't like it uh, and a lot of other people don't like it but so far as i'm concerned it's a peaceful protest you're not hurting anybody you're just highlighting injustice in society and people say it doesn't work but you know we saw in the 1960s this was this was one piece of a you know a big puzzle which obviously advanced the causes the 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 cause um and and hopefully we'll we'll see a, a similar advancement uh you know, in in the coming years here.
0: Well, I think uh, a nice note to end on, Matt, is that whether it made a difference in a wider geopolitical situation in some ways is a bonus if it did. But they just sound like the best of friends.
1: Yeah, they are. And that's it. They they speak about each other so fondly.
0: A quiet hero. (laughs) Quiet Australians is another political... Well, I
1: was going to say quiet Australians that's that's unusual in itself isn't it so no
0: (laughs) says the two british guys with a podcast (laughs) like the sound of their own voice um (laughs) thank you for listening to the wheel of sport what a great story please do rate review wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends that would be really appreciated you can get in touch with matt and myself uh, through socials such as twitter at the wheel of sport instagram at the wheel of sport and also what's the other one matt the, the wheel, wheel of sport at gmail. gmail.com .com. all excellent ways that we won't give our phone numbers we're not that close yet but uh, <laughs> we will see you next time for another great sports story take care see you matt
1: see you now thank you Bye bye